appreciate it, man. <clears throat> well, good morning. This is a very handsome group. You guys look terrific today. How about the worship team, huh? Wow, you guys. I said this yesterday morning when Pastor Bob was here. I'm not sure who this podium was made for, but it wasn't a little guy like me. I can tell you what, this thing's huge. It's a big deal. Hey, I have another confession to make as I begin, and that is, you know, I'm originally from Washington, D.C., so I'm a Redskins fan. And um, I know, see, this has everything to do with the message today. We're going to really see how loving you guys are. I know that I have every intention or knowledge that we're going to lose today. I'm planning for that, but I just want you to know um, it's okay to come into enemy territory in Christ. So it's good to be here. Glad to be here. How many of you have ever had a bathroom fear moment like that guy in that picture? Like, that is the worst. Well, this morning, um, we're going to talk about something very, very important that I think all of us have had a brush with or a taste of. And I'm really grateful to be with you all this morning because my experience of Calvary Chapel people from the times I've had a chance to be here was Sizzling Summer and the Men's Retreat last year and Eric and Pam Segul are very, very good friends that we've known for a long time through Young Life and now here, um, is that you guys care about people and you want to see your life make a difference, not just here, but out there. So here's my question. Why aren't there more people out there in here? Why aren't there more people who are out there in here? This is true from the church I go to, too. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, we could go, well, they've never heard. Okay, that's good. That's part of our reason. That's part of our job, right? Um, you could say, well, the evil one has masked their brains and their minds, so they just can't understand the things of God. Okay? And could it also be what we're going to talk about today, which is they've met some of us. They have been around us. They've looked in. And sometimes they get challenged because a lot of times what we offer isn't so good that people want to buy it. And there's not because what we're offering, there's something wrong with it. Maybe it's the way we're talking about it. Maybe it's what we're displaying to the world, whether we like it or not. There are many people out there who think, we are the what we're against people. We're known way more for what we're against than what we're for. I know for myself, I don't know if you've ever considered this, but uh, when I first came to a point where I was being introduced to this phenomenal person of Jesus Christ, in fact, Jim Rayburn, the founder of Young Life, said it this way. He goes, Jesus Christ is the only person you can talk about without fear of exaggeration. I love that. But that's not how I thought about him. See, what I learned about was I didn't have a problem with Jesus Christ. What I had a problem with was my introduction to Jesus Christ. And I thought he lived where it was hot. And he had 12 friends. And they all wore white. And they walked in a straight line. And they never laughed. And Jesus' goal was just to keep him out of trouble. And I thought, if that's what we're into, I don't want to do that. I just am not in for that. That's not what I want to be counted in on. I think at times, just possibly, the world maybe looks in at us and they see a group of people. And this isn't judging us. I'm up here. I'm speaking to myself as well. But I wonder, do they really look at us and go, I want more of that. Some of their marriages are better when I get around them. They just laugh more. They deal with trauma and pain better. They don't ignore heartache, but they wade in and they go to uncomfortable places well. 
They don't take themselves so seriously, but they take life unbelievably seriously. You know, they're, they're able to say, I'm not good at that. Like, I screwed up. They're able to stay with their kids a little longer. And when they talk to their kids, it's not like they're trying to just get them to do the right thing. They're like actually wanting to treat them in a way that they're launching them into a different future. About who they can be and what they can be in the world. You know, there's something just as destructive um, as license, which simply means running wild with no plumb line. I mean, that's one way that we kind of can go about the world. The other is legalism, where rules and systems and threats of retribution begin to direct our behavior. Pastor Bob asked me to come from Baltimore to here this morning and speak about that. He said, I want you to come this morning from Galatians and talk about the unfruitful legacy of legalism. I said, gosh, Bob, I can't wait to do that. That'd be great. (laughs) But here's what I want you to hear. License nor legalism allows people to flourish as God intends. We all know a free-for-all doesn't work. God has created reality. We don't get to vote on that. It's amazing how people think, well, I can do whatever I want. You can. You really can. But whatever you want doesn't always work. You can do whatever you want, but you don't get to vote if what you want to do is hardwired for how we're actually created to be. So you knock yourself out. I've never felt like I have to try to convince anybody of that. No plans, no insights, no wisdom will ever succeed against the Lord. Proverbs 21.30. So knock yourself out. And when you're done, and when you've had enough band-aids, and enough bleeding, and enough bruises, we can talk. You know, but one of the things I know is that sometimes how people imagine... This community of faith is more about behavior modification than an encounter. And it's really about an encounter. So people kind of throw off faith. But here's what's really in today. Being spiritual. Spirituality is really in. People don't want God or Jesus, but they want to be spiritual. Because they're hardwired for that. So Paul writes this phenomenal book of Galatians centuries ago. And it was written by Paul to various groups of young believers who were followers of Jesus Christ throughout the, the, town of, uh, the area of Galatia known as Asia Minor at that time. It was truly written to protect the freedom that we so beautifully sang about, about God's grace in the Lord. He wrote it so that what a relationship with God is ultimately rooted in, which is God's unmerited love and mercy and grace, that none of us is sitting here because we've gotten it right. Or we keep trying to get it right more. We're here because God did something. And we responded to what he did. But once this little band of believers, I don't know if you knew this, but all the early believers were Jewish. You know, you might say this, well, I'm a Christian. That's great, but you follow a Jewish rabbi who never asked anybody to be a Christian. Who didn't use the word Christianity. And I'm not here to try to uh, perpetuate Christianity. I have no interest in doing that. I hope I get asked back, but I really don't have any interest in doing that. I have a significant interest in talking about the kingdom of God. Because you can go anywhere and talk about that. You can't go anywhere in the world and talk about Christianity. Jesus Christ has people to be followers, students, disciples. If you ask somebody today, are you a Christian? Many would go, yes. If you said, are you a student and a follower of Jesus Christ? They'd go, come again? In that day, people got it. 
The word Christian is mentioned three times in the New Testament. It means a Christ one, someone in whom Jesus Christ lives. And because he lives, we live differently. Not because we have to, we get to. And the Apostle Paul is writing this book because people from um, Jerusalem were coming down. Some of the more legalistic teachers were coming down and they were going into this area and they were telling people that what Jesus did wasn't enough. You've got to add on some things like circumcision. And other different laws that you have to keep that continue to stay right in the eyes of God. And so Paul gives this massive, and rightly so, he is incensed by this. Even to the point where he gives this massive rebuttal in this book trying to um, combat this vision that somehow God's rescuing grace needs to be aided by a bunch of right behavior to somehow prove to God that we're serious. Now, we'll unpack this in a little bit. Do you have your Bibles? I want to read just a little bit from chapter 1, 2, and 3. Galatians chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord, starting at verse 6. Paul says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, get this, which is really no gospel at all. There's not another one. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, you're saved by God's grace. And yet we, I have done it to people, people have done it to me, well-intended, have put weights on me that God never intended to put on me. And now we go to chapter 2. Paul goes, verse 4, chapter 2. This matter arose because some false brothers, see, come down from Jerusalem, had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves again. The word freedom doesn't mean free for all. It means actually freedom to be and to do what you've been created to be and do. It means to go with the grain of reality. We did not give in to them, though, for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Then look at verses 15 and 16 of the same chapter, chapter 2. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Paul is not saying that there's something wrong with the law. What he's saying is we just can't keep all of it. And if that's the way we're going to try to make things right with God, it's going to be a long time before we ever achieve it like never. And then chapter 3, verses 1 to 3 and 6 to 9. He goes, you foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you, tricked you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. Did you receive the Spirit by observing or keeping the law or by believing what you heard? Calvary Chapel, did you receive the Spirit of God by doing certain manners of behavior or by believing in the work of God's Spirit and what He did? How did you get it? By the work of the Spirit, by what God did. Paul's basically saying, so why are you changing the blueprint? I would like to learn one thing. How did you get the Spirit? Are you so foolish, verse 3, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? It's a good question, are you? How many of you in this room think God loves you more if you read your Bible? Now, none of you are going to raise your hand. But here's the difference. How many of you can feel bad if you don't read your Bible? If we want to be honest, a lot of hands are going to go up here. How many of you feel like you pray enough? I hate when people ask me, how's my prayer life? Like, what? 
Do I pray enough? I, I don't know. It says pray without ceasing. Probably not. <laughs> or do my, if my thoughts count, I'm praying a lot. And I know, I think they count. I pray all the time. God, have mercy. Lord, I pray for that person. I, uh, but do I feel guilty about my prayer life? All the time. Where the heck is that coming from? I don't think the Spirit's going, oh, today we got to work on Goodman. We get that dude just to pray more. I'd love him more. Look, none of it, that's heresy. But why do we feel it? We all do. And then when the world looks at us, here's what we'd say if we're really honest with people. Come meet Jesus. It's awesome. And in two years, you'll feel worse about yourself than you do right now. It's awesome. <laughs> it's a great ride. You'll feel more inadequate. You know, there are more things that you feel like you don't do right. It's perfect. In verses 6 to 9, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. Who did God announce the gospel in advance to? Abraham. And he said this gospel is about what God does and we believe God and then God counts that treasured trust in him for righteousness. And Paul is masterful in showing that even Abraham, the one whom our faith goes all the way back to and the lineage of Jesus goes all the way back to, that is by God's grace. And it's always been that way. See, God's always wanted our hearts and loyalty more than he just wanted some hollow behavior management program that we call faith. Because somehow it gives us an illusion of control. Think about this. At creation, do you think God actually created humanity to be nice, not to cuss, not to dance, not to drink, not to go to certain movies, only to have certain size, certain size homes, and not to have sex out of marriage? Do you think that's the only reason God created us? That's all some of us talk about. Listen to this. When God created the world, how many things did he say not to do? This isn't hard. One. You know what that means? God says there's a whole lot to do. Go have at it. There's a big world. Knock yourselves out. This word to rule, to have dominion, really means walk into all I created and develop my undeveloped world. Isn't that awesome? And when we don't take dominion, guess who does? God created us. Not because he had a moment of insecurity and the father looked at the son and goes, man, I'm having a total security crisis. we got to make something to prove that we're powerful and make it love us. So whenever we're feeling a little low on the security tank, we can go, say you love us. You know, these songs don't make God feel any better about himself that we sang today. What it does is align us with the reality that God's put in our heart that we're meant to do from creation. The Father, Son, and Spirit invited us into the grandeur, the beauty, the glory of all that they had. And now they said, there's just one thing I don't want you to do. If you want to know the ultimate thing is just trust me. And trust is a relational word. What God wanted was us. You know, legalism, this is my definition, is simply man-made hoops. They're man-made hoops that we decide that we have to jump through to earn or to maintain or to somehow secure God's love and approval. 
And if we're not careful, it becomes all about us and what we do and not about him and what he already has done. And this is very hard to manage this. And I'll get to this in a minute because are you saying that it doesn't matter what we do? That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying there's a reason why we do what we do and some of us are doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. We grew up with scorecards. We're getting ready to have our seventh grandchild in February. My lovely wife right here, honey. There you are. My lovely wife of almost 37 years. And uh, as soon as this little one comes out, they're going to get a score. I don't know what it means. It's called an APGAR score. And then they're going to go back to the doctor and get percentiles. They're going to be a certain percentile based on the rest of humanity. And then eventually we have some other grandsons, and they're old enough to go out in the playground now, and they get chosen on teams. And, you know, if you're fast and bigger, you get chosen first. If you're little like I was, guys go, okay, we'll take him. And then, you know, you get to class, and there's certain kind of classes based on your knowledge. Like there's gifted and talented, there's kind of gifted, then there's regular. Those were the classes I went to, the regular ones. And then, you know, you get, you get a little older, and then you go to middle school. The worst place to ever go in a middle school, you all know this, is the locker room. It's horrible. There are guys in that room. I mean, I walked in there the first time I went, did you start shaving at birth? Like, what the heck? <laughs> like, that was so far into the future for me. I mean, it was horrible going in that room. I mean, I look around, and like, everybody's bigger than me. And, you know, some people develop earlier than others. They get attention for that. Some don't. Some get asked to dances. Some never do. High school, you still get divided by your intellectual capacity. I get all that. But, you know, the worst day of high school for me was when the SAT scores came back and it decided what colleges you could apply to. I knew you could get, I was going to at least get 400 because I, th- I was told you got that to sign your name and take the test. <laughs> Everything was up for grabs after that. I was told you had to do 1,000 to at least even kind of be up there. I didn't do 1,000. So when everybody says, How, how'd you do on the SAT? I hated that day. Hated it. You know, what college did you get in? The only one I applied to. We do all these scores. And then, you know, we got people in this church who are 25, 28, 30, 32. You aren't married yet. How do you feel about yourself? You know, one's a whole number. Do you know that? And can we learn to embrace where we are in life? Just uh, being single is really hard. You know what? Being married is really hard. And and if anybody's married and says, it's not, I I don't know who they're married to, but I'm just telling you. (laughs) If you take this thing seriously in a good way, it's hard. If you want to grow, it's, it's good. It's hard. And I think what Jesus says, wherever you are, embrace it with me. All I'm saying to you all, and so we think that kind of stuff never gets into this. That's crazy. Over time, we're just prone to slowly add on to the grace of God out of fear that somehow grace and freedom is so dangerous that if people really get it, it might lead people to do crazy stuff. They'll take the grace of God too far, and that's really dangerous. And so now we've got to build boxes around people. And Paul says, I couldn't disagree with you more. In fact, grace, when it's really tasted, it liberates in such a fashion that it keeps us in the right place because now we actually know who and whose we are. And it just, it helps us be a people who literally live into, out of a right spirit, all that God wants. You know, we've got to get rid of this good dog, bad dog syndrome. Good dog, good dog, you did this. I'm a good dog, thank you. Bad dog, bad dog. It's like, What? You know, I've had a chance to travel over the years, and um, when I come home and see my wife, I don't go, hey, honey, I was a good boy. I didn't flirt. I didn't even think about looking at anybody else, though I could have. 
I didn't because I wanted to be a good husband. I was a good husband. How are you thinking of me, honey? Now, ladies, if your husband came home and actually did that. <laughs> now, here's good. Did he do the right thing? He did the right thing. But the question is, you're questioning his spirit. Now, the question, you know why I don't do those things? It isn't to be a good boy. Or it isn't even just to be a good husband. I do it because I actually love my wife. I'm capable of anything, but it just isn't who I am. So here's the question. See, grace makes us keep coming back to, who are you? Whose are you? And when our faith begins, and it's all about God, and it slowly becomes all about us, we've lost it. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer me who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus could have been the moral judge if he wanted to, slinging judgment all over the place, but he really didn't do a lot of that. And the guys who got the most heat were the religious leaders who were putting a lot more on people that even God wasn't doing because, see, they never could get it right. And in that day and age, the religious leaders were literally the ones who not only had religious clout but political clout. And we can wear people out. John Ortberg said it so profoundly when he says, you know, the church is a very practical place. And quite frankly, we generally tell people that the answer to every spiritual problem is this. More. More reading. More prayer. More serving. More study. More giving. More trying. I'm getting exhausted just doing that list. And I think what Jesus wants is us. And when we get us right with him, I think it changes stuff. Let me draw you something some of the men have seen, but I, I want to draw it again. And it's this little iceberg. And for the sake of time, you know that you only see about 10 to 15% of the iceberg. It's what's visible and what's public. Now, let me ask you something. Um, for those of you over here who want to see this, I hope. Just imagine. Um, so visible and public. So let me ask you this. Uh, does this matter, the visible and public part, a visible part of an iceberg? If you're a boat, it kind of matters, doesn't it? Yeah, that's good. It, it does. But, you know, the 85% that we never think about is down here. What part sunk the Titanic? It's the part nobody spent any time thinking about. But here's what happened. We come to meet Jesus, and you would think after a while that all we're about is the visible and public. We just want to get people to stop doing bad stuff that they're doing. Is the goal of following Jesus Christ to just stop doing bad stuff that we're doing? Listen, I know people who don't know Jesus that are way nicer than some of us. If that's the gig, let me tell you, they don't need Jesus then. Whose marriages are better? They don't need the Lord. But they do because the goal isn't that, does this matter? Yes, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good what? works and glorify your Father in heaven. Wouldn't it be great to be known as the what we're for people? But Jesus said that all of this, if it's going to stick, comes from down here. The good man out of the good stored up in his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil in his heart brings forth what's evil. In essence, the shape of this heart eventually is going to go public. And if what we're doing up here doesn't come out of a conviction that lives down here, this won't last very long. And when we do the right thing for the right motivation, it sticks and there's liberation. I'm free to do all things, but all things aren't good for me. 
So why do I not do some things? Well, I ought to be a good Christian. I have no interest in being one of those. I, I, I'm just being very honest. What I want to be is a man who authentically comes to God, whose heart's been captivated by a greater love, and all I want to do is be a faithful lover to God. This is why the book of Hosea and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, when it talks about sin, it talks about us committing spiritual adultery and prostituting ourselves with the wrong lover. I want my heart, but see, we got broken parts of our heart and cracks, and so sometimes we never deal with that. And when people never deal with their wounds, what can often happen is we have grown men who still act like little boys certain ways. Grown women who still don't know as a little girl if they really matter and are cared for, if they really have value. And what Jesus wants to do, once we give him our heart, is begin to heal it so what comes out of us is actually authentic and real. And now we do the right things for the right reasons. And get this, every hill is not worth dying on, brothers and sisters. The world looks at us and goes, you know, you are some of the most divided people in the world. You talk this great game, but you guys literally can't sit to eat together in, in certain places because, you know, you guys disagree over whether you should dance or whether you should go to movies or whether you should drink or what political affiliation you have or the size of your house or what movies you can see or the type of and value of car that you drive. And the world's going, is that Jesus? Like, if that's him... I can do this without him. And it'll be way more fun for however long of a ride that I have. And see, we've really screwed up this vision of secular and sacred. We don't know what that means. Some of you in this room think this, that Do uh, Pastor Bob and the staff here have a sacred job. And those of you that don't work here, you have a secular job. You go into a secular world every day. And I want to ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus, why would you ever have a secular job? So Bob's in the ministry. As far as I read the New Testament, so are you. We've all been given the ministry of reconciliation. See, all that means is Bob can't make as much money as some of you. <laughs> and when he takes his wife to dinner, he has to go to Applebee's. He can't ever go to the really nice place. Uh, facetiously, but we've really got this messed up. Let me ask you something. This is really important. The Greek word for world is aion. A-I-O-N. The Latin... A derivative of that is seculium, which becomes the word, what's that sound like? Secular. Same vision for world. So none of us want to be worldly, right? God forbid. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God, James says. Do not love the world or the things of the world for all that's in the world. 1 John 2, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of God. It's of the world. And the world and its lusts are passing away. And I don't want to be that. So here's what we do. When God created the world, how much did he say was good? How much of it? Okay, for the sake of... That meant agriculture is good. That meant business is good. That meant sex is good. You could go down money. We could keep going like journalism. We could keep going down the line, 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 line. It's all what? Good. So how did it become secular? See, in an effort not to be worldly, here's what we thought. Let's make certain things. Let's just... Okay. Journalism, bad. Uh, media, okay, we're gonna, no, that's bad. Politics, you cannot love Jesus and be in politics. That's for darn, darn, darn sure. <laughs> Business, no way. And so here's what happens. All these believers in an effort to not be worldly either go to jobs every day that they think are secular, totally devoid from their faith, or we pull out of these things, give it back to the culture, and then have prayer meetings to change the world, but none of us are in the world to actually change it. 
That's crazy. Jesus also said we're to be in the world, but not... Here's what makes something secular. That literally means you just live without God. What makes something secular is not its essence, it's its direction. Does it promote the values of the kingdom or pull away from them? Is teaching a secular job or a sacred job? Depends on how you teach. What's your heart? Is business secular or sacred? You know, there is such thing as uh, redemptive capitalism, and it really helps people. Then there's AIG. <laughs> and when you've seen people dance, you want to worship God? You've also seen people dance, you want to run for the hills, hide the kids, animals. <laughs> Just don't let anybody see it. No, I'm dead serious. We've got to be people who get this. And I think in the name of being godly, we just don't know what we're talking about sometimes. We've got to learn to live in the tension. Some brother out there came up to me, he goes, <laughs> during the break, he goes, I just want you to know I'm really new at this. I go, new at what? You're following the Lord. I love it. And I read Galatians like I read 30 times because I saw we we're going to do this. And I said, brother, let me tell you something. Don't lose what you have right now. This passion, this is so rich. Please promise me that you will not lose this, Okay. Don't ever tell somebody what to do without telling them why to do it. You literally, I believe, is one of the worst things we can do to people. Because see, here's the unfruitfulness of legalism. Here's what it does to people. It creates a false righteousness. Where we think we've really got it together when we don't. And it robs us of the joy. It fosters an attitude of superiority and inferiority. Where we look down at people and think, man, I can really help you. You know, it's a crazy thing. It leaves so much hidden and unattended to. This is why, you know, if we don't get this right with the iceberg down here in our heart, up here, all of a sudden you hear about somebody's life blowing up in public above the 10 to 15% line, and they've been struggling for months below the water line, but see, they didn't feel they could be honest about it because somehow even in their own minds, that kind of vulnerability, the church won't know what to do with it. Pray we'd be the kind of people that know this. We actually are people who don't have it together. Who comes to the one who does have it together. Who actually helps us get it together. And we're all in different stages. This is not promoting license. But what it's bringing, I think, is a higher calling. That we're not going to major in the minors. But we're also not going to rob people of the joy and freedom that they actually have in Jesus Christ. I want to train people to think, not live as robots. Should I go see an R-rated movie? I don't know. Ask God. Number one, are you of age? That's a no-brainer. Like obeying the law. God is clear about some things in Scripture. I can give you two things today if you want to do the will of God. Be thankful and abstain from sexual immorality. That's a whole other conversation. We've got to quit looking at the younger generation and go, just stay out of bed with somebody. Uh, okay, not working. We have the story to tell them why. It is grand, it's beautiful. Augustine said it this way, love God and do as you please. That's scary, isn't it? Yeah, whoa, 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 whoa. You just let people do that. Like they're going to do crazy stuff and justify it by loving God. Well, I want to say, what do you think really mean loving God is? I believe this. I don't think Augustine said love God and just do whatever you want and try to justify it by the love of God. I think what he really understood is if you really love God, I really love my wife, 
I'm just not going to do things that would hinder this love. I don't even need you to tell me. I don't need somebody to tell me, don't look at porn, don't flirt with other women, don't do this. I don't need anybody to tell me that. Every day with us isn't great. But that's a hand I want to hold when I take my last breath. And I want to hold her hand because she's one of the most noble people on the planet of the earth. I'm not all that. She's the one person in my life that says, you know, you're not all that. You can stand up and talk to all these people. You're just not all that. And I love that. I, I mean, I really do. We're human beings. The worst you could do today is think I have it more together than you. I don't. But I will tell you this. A person captivated my heart. And I don't want to disappoint him. Because he loves me. And he loves you. And he doesn't want right behavior. It's just empty of that. What he'd love is doing the right things in the right way because your loves are ordered and you can't wait to please him. So God, should I go see that R-rated movie? Not tonight. I don't think you're at a place where your mind and heart could handle it. Okay, I'm not going. You know, that one might be really good to see so you can interact with the culture at large a little more. I think you can handle it. They're going to cuss in that movie. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think you can handle that too. But look for the essence so we can be people who make a difference. And I would say this, whatever isn't done in faith is sin. So if you can't go, then don't go. But if another person says for these reasons before Christ, I think I can, don't sit in judgment, be divided, and the world looks at us fighting over stuff that they can do without us. Does this make sense to you guys? We got a greater call. There is no other gospel. None. And just notice, nobody's getting away with anything. Hebrews 4.13 says this, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must all, all give an account. I want to give an account out of a full heart and not just try to be a good boy, Lord. I want to pray for us this morning. Maybe you're here today and Somehow you've kind of lost the beauty and mystery and the majesty of this incredible love. Maybe others of you are sitting here and you're going, wow. If God wants me that way to help me change, I want to surrender my heart to him. And I would declare that's the smartest thing you'll ever do in your life. Come home. Lord, I want to ask for each one of us here and myself that our hearts would return to our first love because of who you are and who we can be in you, that we live a different way. We'd be more courageous in meetings, more humble, willing to take risks, better listeners to people that are hurting, more willing to ask people if we could just say a prayer for them, maybe more generous, and that the world would say, if that's who this one is who's changed your life, then I want him. So Lord, here we are. And God, I pray for any here this morning who 
have yet to surrender their heart to you, that they would be quick to do so. That they would not live one more second fighting the reality that they are meant and hardwired for Jesus Christ. Might they say yes to your yes. Lord, we love you, but only because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. I think they'll be, thank you. I think